Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for July 27th, 2018. I'm Brian Cardell, and this is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast considering salient appellate and constitutional law questions. What exactly is the core of the Second Amendment, and how wide to its contours extent? Divided Ninth Circuit majority gave an answer to that question Tuesday, specifically in regard to the state of Hawaii's regime to regulate open public firearm carry. Hawaii's law required those wishing to publicly carry weapons to show some special need to do so, for example, a fear for their person or property or gauging in the protection of life and property. Otherwise, the state generally required weapons to be kept in a possessor's home or place of business. The plaintiff challenged the law as violating his Second Amendment rights, and if a Second Amendment suit over a special need or good cause requirement attending public carry requests sounds familiar, it may be because the Ninth Circuit two years ago reckoned with a similar provision from San Diego County upholding it in a non-bonk reversal, but only as it applied to concealed public carry applicants. This left open the question of regulating the right to open public carry for this appeal. The majority opinion in Tuesday's ruling voided Hawaii's law after extensively reciting historical statutes, treatises, and precedent to deem open public carry a core Second Amendment right, and one that Hawaii's regime unduly infringed. Notably, the same judge, Dermid O'Scanlan, penned both this majority and the one from two years ago that was reversed on banc. And in Judge Clifton's dissenting view, Tuesday's ruling should perhaps meet a similar fate. Judge Clifton referenced that earlier opinion as providing the rationale, if not the binding precedent, to uphold long-standing regulation on public carry like Hawaii's. Of course, the Ninth Circuit has not been alone in considering good cause-type public carry requirements. Various circuits around the country have reached contrasting rulings on the question, setting up a potential Supreme Court review in the near term. Today on the show, we'll hear competing views on the opinion, its bases, and its import in the larger Second Amendment context. We'll be joined by the co-counsel for the plaintiff in this case. They're Alan Beck, the law offices of Alan Beck in San Diego, and Stephen Stambulia of Stambulia Law in Madison, Mississippi. They'll walk us through the majority's opinion and its rationale. Then we'll hear from Hannah Shearer from the Giffords Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence in San Francisco. We'll help us fully unpack Judge Clifton's dissent here. Before hearing from our guests, though, two quick reminders. As you may be aware, this podcast is now more easily accessible in addition to finding it on our site. You can also download it from iTunes or stream it on the podcast app on your iOS device. Just search for Weekly Appellate Report there. Any downloads, clicks, rates, reviews, and the like are tremendously appreciated. And of course, don't forget that, as always, CLE credit is available for listeners of the podcast. Just find a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears and one such credit can be yours. Without any further preamble, then, I'd like to welcome in our first two guests, their co-counsel or the original plaintiff in the action here, and the appellant. First, we have Alan Beck from the Law Offices of Alan Beck in San Diego. Alan, welcome to the podcast. Uh, good morning. And we have Stephen Stambulia from the Stambulia Law Firm in Madison, Mississippi. Uh, Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having us on. Yeah, so uh, glad to have you. We'll start maybe at the beginning here with the underlying facts of this case, an interesting one rendered earlier this week, revolving around the, the Second Amendment and the right to open carry. Alan, what? who, who is the plaintiff here you're representing? Uh, what are the underlying facts here? And, and what, what is this statute at issue, this Hawaii law, Section 134-9, prescribe, and uh, how 
did it permit or restrict the, the ability of an individual to, uh, to carry a firearm in public? My uh, client's name is George K. Young, Jr. He is a uh, resident of uh, Hilo, Hawaii, which is on the big island of Hawaii. Something that uh, might be confusing to people that uh, don't live in Hawaii is uh, the defendant is both the state of Hawaii and the county of Hawaii. And the county of Hawaii is just simply the big island. My client is a uh, retired infantryman. He uh, was born Hawaii. He was drafted and uh, went to Vietnam. He uh, uh, subsequently spent 21 years in the Army and you know, moved back. He has filed uh, three complaints pro se uh, challenging the um, constitutionality of uh, Hawaii's restrictions on uh, uh, firearms carry. And uh, the reason he was able to do so is, you know, uh, typically registered Akata you know, uh, would apply, but he filed one after Heller and uh, after McDonald, so the legal landscape changed. I became aware of his uh, dismissal in uh, 2012, and I uh, opted to represent him. In the lower court, he asked for an injunction of the entire weapons chapter of uh, Hawaii. Again, he, uh, being pro se, he uh, just thought that would be the best way to, you know, get a, uh, what he styled as a uh, weapons permit, and um, he asked for a uh, weapons permit for uh, firearms and uh, less deadly uh, weapons. Uh, he includes uh, electric arms and uh, switchblades uh, within his prayer for relief. Uh, the uh, lower court dismissed his claims uh, based upon the uh, premise that the uh, uh, Second Amendment right is a homebound right. So um, he had not uh, stated a um, claim which relief to be given. And uh, the uh, uh, the county defendants, he sued the state and the county, filed a 12B6, which was granted uh, on the merits. The Second Amendment right uh, does not apply outside the home. And the uh, state defendants filed a, um, a 12C motion on uh, sovereign immunity grounds, and uh, that was granted as well. I filed the notice of appeal, and we went up to the Ninth Circuit and uh, uh, challenged the, the county's 12B6 ruling solely. Specifically as to uh, that section, I just want to unpack it a, a little bit further. So what, what exactly does this section prescribe when it comes to an individual like Mr. Young uh, seeking a permit to carry a firearm in public? I guess what, what must such an individual show to receive uh, such permission from, from the state or the, the county? Um, the, there's several things. First off, uh, just to own a firearm at all. All firearms in Hawaii need to be registered, and there's a training requirement. That's not part of the, uh, the carry statute. That's simply to own. Uh, once you've uh, gone through those hurdles, uh, in theory anyway, you can apply to the chief and demonstrate that uh, you have an exceptional case and uh, where you fear injury to uh, either yourself or your property. And you also have to be a citizen of the United States and be over 21. And uh, that is to receive a concealed carry permit. To receive an um, open carry permit, you uh, need to uh, demonstrate that you um, are um, engaged in the protection of life and property. So the open carry permit is, uh, at least in policy, the only issued to um, security guards and 
other people that are actually engaged in, you know, some sort of professional protection of life or property. Uh, the exceptional case, at least in theory, could be issued to a private citizen. The practical implementation of this county, at least by the of this policy by the county of Hawaii, is that they simply have never issued. We um, received some information that we submitted to the court that uh, demonstrates that it's a letter from the uh, the sheriff that someone had wrote to him, uh, have you ever issued a permit? And uh, they said the sheriff uh, wrote back saying that uh, his records went back to 2000 and they had never issued a permit since then. And prior to that, he was fairly sure they'd never issued a permit, but he simply didn't have records uh, prior to 2000. And as the um, open carry, yeah, that simply just is not issued to um, uh, private citizens like uh, the client. So it's you know, impossible for him to uh, even, um, for him to be issued one of those either. However, he did seek uh, permission uh, from the uh, sheriff. Prior to the beginning of litigation, he wrote that he'd like to uh, a permit to either carry openly or concealed. The, there are several other counties in Hawaii, and my understanding is Hawaii has issued in the past, but uh, very rarely. Uh, the um, uh, I'm aware of uh, maybe two permits that uh, were issued in the past 20 years in Hawaii, but in the county of Hawaii, which is where we're suing, it's all records indicated it's simply a complete ban on carry, despite what the statutory language says. That setup of the, the requirements for both getting a concealed carry permit or an open carry permit, that sets up well. Uh, my, my next question was, about a recent case from the Ninth Circuit that, that folks certainly interested in this area of law would be familiar with, the Peruta case, um, which regarded a somewhat similar law here in, in California requiring a sort of a extra good cause to be shown before an individual could uh, carry a, a firearm concealed in public. Uh, some showing need to be, needed to be made over and above just the general uh, right to to keep and bear arms provided by the Second Amendment. Um, and, and an on Bach panel of the uh, Ninth Circuit upheld that law. So what, uh, Alan and Stephen, feel free to jump in here as well. Uh, what questions or question did, did that Peruta decision leave open here? This case does uh, sound somewhat similar. The facts sound somewhat similar. Um, a good cause requirement to carrying a firearm sounds somewhat similar to that case. What's what's the open question here to be resolved? In that Florida litigant asked his prayer for relief and applied solely for a concealed carry permit. So, uh, in bank court interpreted uh, his complaint to be solely a request for a to concealed carry rather than a uh, request to um, carry in some fashion. Now, as a practical matter, in uh, San Diego, it worked. That uh, concealed carry permit is the only even um, is the only avenue you have by law to um, carry. So there's probably some issues with uh, legal reasoning there. But uh, regardless, Ninth Circuit uh, solely analyzed concealed carry and whether that was protected uh, at uh, common law. And what the Ninth Circuit found in Pruda is that there's a historical tradition. A banning concealed carry. I'm uh, not a historian, but uh, what it appears to be is concealed carry was uh, typically deemed something that you would do if you um, were a robber or 
you know, an assassin, and uh, it was uh, traditionally that uh, people openly carried, because if you had some sort of confrontation, there wasn't really an issue with uh, you know, uh, just showing the world that you uh, were carrying a sword or a dagger or later on a handgun. So the uh, Ninth Circuit analyzed that and found that concealed carry is simply not part is not part of the historical tradition protected by the Second Amendment. But this uh, differs from my client's case because he asked for a permit to um, uh, carry either concealed or openly. He uh, cared less whether he is uh, the manner in which he carries. He just would like to have a uh, firearm as person to defend himself. And the um, the panel, our panel, uh, you know, Judge Scanlon found that uh, Pruda was distinguishable because Pruda expressly reserved a ruling on the issue of whether there's some means to carry uh, outside the home. They expressly limited their ruling to concealed carry. So Judge O'Scanlan was able to find that uh, it may be the concealed carry is outside of the scope of the Second Amendment right, but here we're dealing with a prayer for relief that deals with uh, you know, either open or concealed. So uh, the young panel found that uh, the right does extend outside the home to open carry. And that's in line with uh, you know a, a historical um, tradition which um, allowed uh, where it uh, may be that the uh, manner of carry could be restricted. However, uh, historically there was never a um, complete ban on uh carry or uh, typically did not occur. We'll get a little bit more deeply into the the panel's opinion and the reasoning undergirding it, uh, but quickly I just wanted to ask the sort of central thrust of the arguments that you brought in this appeal. What, what in, in your view, were the important kind of argumentative lines of attack here to, to present to the court? Well, to a large degree, this is a fairly straightforward appeal. Well, as a preliminary matter, we're, this is a Rule 12 dismissal, so it, the facts are not really an issue. So, uh, and uh, it's more of a uh, issue of uh, the appeal was solely on uh, the law. So, you know, the beginning of a brief is uh, just, it's primarily on establishing that the Second Amendment right historically does apply outside the home. And uh, there's quite a bit of historical analysis went into that. And uh, something the, uh, so we, uh, you know, argued that uh, the sec- in our opening brief, those, this was uh, prior to Prota. We filed a supplemental brief uh, afterwards. But there we argued in the opening brief that, uh, you know, we're, uh, that there's, the state needs to require, allow some form of carry outside the home in order to uh, uh, stay in line with the original meaning of the Second Amendment. And we took no position on whether uh, that need to be openly or concealed. Now, the state of Hawaii has uh, made its policy preference to, uh, at least in theory, allow for concealed carry. If uh, in our opening brief we see that the, uh, that uh, if there's a concealed carry is allowed, uh, that open carry could be restricted. That position evolved uh, post Peruta. But however, in the opening brief we uh, argued that um, if um, the if uh, the way that they've implemented the concealed carry statute is unconstitutional for a number of reasons. So in San Diego, where uh, the brutal litigation occurred, 
I, I just know this, uh, not as a lawyer, just because I live in San Diego. Um, there's a very clear-cut process by which how you apply for a concealed carry permit, and there's very well-defined guidelines for the police department to um, evaluate your um, application. Those clear-cut standards uh, do not exist in Hawaii. It's just simply up to the discretion of the chief of police, who, as for the most part, just you know, has has an unbridled discretion to uh, issue or not issue a permit, as long as the person is not statutorily prohibited from uh, owning a firearm in the first place. So that runs afoul of both the Second Amendment and uh, the Due Process Clause. And that's what we focused uh, our briefing on, is that uh, even for argument's sake, if there can be some sort of uh, rationing, how many permits are uh, issued, you can't allow a uh, county, an unelected county official to have complete and unbridled discretion on whether or not he's going to uh, issue a permit. And uh, this may sound a little bit odd, but uh, uh, in the county of Hawaii, my client asked to get a uh, was asked for an application, and he was told we don't actually have applications to, for a uh, uh, to uh, apply for a carry permit. Just write us a letter. That uh, sort of demonstrates how little they care about having some sort of uh, procedures in place to at least uh, comply with uh, a basic due process. The um, Ninth Circuit um, found that since they were ruling for us on the Second Amendment claim. They didn't need to reach the due process claim. But I think those two claims are somewhat intertwined to begin with because, uh, you know, to survive constitutional norms, you, you just simply cannot have a uh, government official just engage in what's ultimately a arbitrary, capricious evaluation of, a, uh, of someone's uh, application. And then I just wanted to pull out a couple of threads from, from the majority opinion that, that sided with your the plaintiff here with your side as as you say the focus of the opinion is is really on the the second amendment claim and, and how to what extent the the second amendment protects the right to carry outside of the home um the start the starting point the majority opinion perhaps naturally is is the most uh, salient second amendment supreme court case that there has been the dc versus heller ruling but you know as, as folks are familiar with that case centered around an issue of whether firearms could be kept in, in the home for self-defense because that's the law that was at issue there. So obviously the, the, the panel is going to have to go beyond Heller, but just setting up where the, the majority opinion goes, you know, what what kind of work does, does that opinion do in sort of setting some guidelines for the, the, the path forward uh, for the, the opinion here? What, what, I guess, what, how, how, how much help is it in a case where we're talking about not possessing a gun in the home but outside instead? Well, I uh, think that Heller is, uh, Heller's uh, dicta anyway, is very instructive on whether there's a um, right outside the home. Uh, as a, uh, the uh, Heller court outlines a lot of um, uh, potential restrictions that there can be on um, uh, weapons. And one of those is uh, it's originally from the statute of Northampton, which is a 1328 law. And uh, the um, Heller court says that dangerous and unusual weapons 
it can be restricted. I argued in um, our uh, supplemental brief, after I had some time to really conduct some historical analysis, is that uh, Heller, by saying that this is a, um, a appropriate prohibition, was uh, looking towards a fairly lengthy historical tradition where the uh, Second Amendment right was expressly extended outside the home, but restrictions on the manner of carry was allowed. Um, an issue that we've had in this appeal is uh, I don't believe that anyone's really conducted real uh, solid historical analysis of the phrase dangerous unusual. At common law, the uh, dangerous dangerous weapons simply was uh, any uh, item that could take life. You know, this could apply to a sword, this could apply to a knife, a, a gun, etc. And that phrase was used in conjunction with the phrase unusual. When uh, this was used uh, at uh, common law, this typically meant that uh, someone was using a dangerous and unusual uh, a, a weapon in a uh, time, place, and manner that that was unusual for polite society. Let me uh, let me try to illustrate that doctrine. Um, I think uh, that's what Justice Scalia was uh, getting at when he was interviewed uh, a couple of years ago on Fox News. He talked about uh, how going around with a uh, head axe would be um, uh, terrifying, and uh, that would that could be a potentially a misdemeanor, a crime of a fray at uh, common law. Well, that it probably would be the case if you were to carry, say, a battle axe, some armor at the local market. They uh, would have found that to be unusual behavior. Whereas if a person would carry, say, a dagger or a short sword, there was an uh, understood right you'd carry those types of weapons, and that would be a usual type of um, carry. So I think the takeaway there is that Heller makes it uh, fairly clear that the right inside the home is most acute. So once you go outside the home, there the right still exists, but there are some um, that uh, the, there's uh, more of interest in uh, regulating the manner, the exercise of the right outside the home, while there being an express historical right to carry. I guess the really the heart of this ruling seems to naturally enough come from the text of the Second Amendment itself, and specifically the word bear, as in to bear, to bear arms. Judge O'Scanlan and his his opinion seems to stress that, that this word, in addition to keep, uh, keep and bear arms, must do some independent work. And so if Heller, you know, sort of stands for the proposition that you can keep arms in your home, then there must also be some proposition that the bearing arm stands for, namely bearing them outside of the home. Um, walk, walk me through, I guess, the, that textual argument. In, um, I, I actually think that uh, Miller and uh, Heller support that uh, if we assume that the core right of the Second Amendment is for uh, personal self-defense, and uh, I believe that's the correct ruling, then it's um, redundant to have a, a constitutional amendment that allows for um, just simply uh, you know, keeping where bear, which simply is uh, redundant with uh, keeping, because if the right is solely to um, keep an arm, 
there obviously would be answer, a uh, related right to a uh, you know Barrett from your safe to your um, you know uh, bedroom or something along that lines, mm-hmm. and that simply can't be that that's sufficient to uh, with what was considered um, bearing at the time that uh, the uh, uh, of the ratification, and this is uh, supported. Um, United States v. Miller, uh, at least to me, appears to be a case that's been uh, wrongfully maligned. That's a, um, a 1939 case that dealt with a uh, short barrel shotgun. And I think that the, this case uh, supports the proposition that there is a uh, some sort of right outside the home and that there's individual right. In uh, Miller, uh, the uh, defendants were two people that were transporting a uh, Stevens double-barrel shotgun uh, in their vehicle. And they were both uh, known criminals. Uh, presumably, they had the uh, short-barrel uh, shotgun for, you know, some sort of, um, you know, for self-defense because they had a fairly, uh, you know, a dangerous lifestyle. The lower court found that, um, and I'm not completely familiar with uh, the procedure back in 1939, but I do know that uh, you were able to directly appeal to the Supreme Court at, during this stage, which is much different than how things are now. Uh, they were caught with a uh, you know, short barrel shotgun, and the lower court found that um, and they had not paid the $200 NFA stamp, which was required by the uh, 1934 uh, National Firearms Act. So uh, lower court found that uh, this conviction um, violated the... Uh, Second Amendment. Uh, the government appealed up to uh, the Supreme Court, and uh, neither the uh, parties, uh, uh, the defendants, did not um, submit any briefing, nor did they appear, um, and nor did their attorney. So the um, uh, Supreme Court was only left with the uh, government's position. So, with the nine uh, zero opinion, what the Miller Court did was that found that it wasn't in the judicial notice that a short barrel rifle or a short barrel shotgun is protected to the second by the Second Amendment and remanded the case back to the original trial court to have uh, some sort of evidentiary hearing on this issue. The two defendants were um, killed in some sort of uh, criminal activity prior to that happening, so the case simply was uh, mooted out. So there simply was if there was no individual right, then you know there would be no need to remand the case back to see whether the short barrel shotgun is is protected by the Second Amendment uh, or uh, it supports preservation and efficiency of the militia, which is essentially a test that was uh, promulgated by the Miller Court for the um, trial court to apply. Additionally, if uh, there was no right outside the home, Miller and um, Frank Layton was the other defendant. Um, would not have, uh, you know, been afforded any sort of uh, Second Amendment right, you know, because they were they weren't caught with a short barrel shotgun inside their home. They were caught uh, outside the home. So, the Supreme Court decision Miller uh, strongly suggests there has to be some application outside the home. If, if there's a right to keep arms, then there would be no need to have a bear in the same constitutional amendment. It seems to um, engage in activity in the home, which is incidental to keeping arms. And that's that's the argument the majority makes, 
it would be a, a superfluous portion to the amendment if Bayer only referred to a bearing to the extent that it's required to be able to keep inside your home. So in order to uh, give meaning to that portion of the amendment, the bear portion, there has to be, by necessity, some right to uh, bear it outside the home. It's not tied in at, to the keep uh, to the keeping of arms inside the home. And, the, and basically, the the district court held that it was just a right inside the home, and and completely ignored the bear part. Um, and I think that's where the majority in the young panel really focused on because you have to focus like Alan says, you know, we can't treat the constitution. Um, every word in the constitution was put there for a reason. And, uh, justice, I'm sorry, judge O'Scanlan says, you know, we don't have surplus words in our constitution. We have to give every word meaning. They're not just put there uh, for show. Essentially. I mean, he didn't say that, but it's kind of like what he's saying. Uh, so they really focus on bear here. And to have a right outside the home, you have to interpret bear, given its ordinary and common meaning, you know, to care, to carry, or to wear. And you wouldn't just carry or wear a gun in your home because you wouldn't need that because you would have keep, right? You could keep a gun in your home. But you also have the word bear, and to give that meaning, then there must be a right outside. And if we go back to Heller, Heller's instructive because it talks about the core right and where the right is most acute is in the home. So if they only wanted to say you only have a right to keep a gun, an operable gun for self-defense in the home, they could have simply just said you only have a right to keep an operable gun for self-defense inside your home. But instead they use language of it's most acute in your home, so it could be less acute outside your home, but that doesn't foreclose the possibility that the right extends outside the home. So that leads me to my next question. That um, idea that the right must extend outside of the home, albeit perhaps a less acute right, doesn't really end the inquiry here necessarily because if the right is less acute, then say there could be regulations like a good cause requirement before a person could get a permit to carry outside the home. And so the majority still has to go a little bit further and say why that right extending outside of the home is violated by this regulation. Um, So why does the majority get there and saying that you know, even if we sort of take some of the language of Heller, that the right is a lot less acute outside of the home, that notwithstanding, this um, this section of the Hawaii statute does violate the, the Second Amendment. Well, in, in the Hawaii case, it's easy. It's because it, Mr. Young can't get a, a permit to carry. He can't exercise his less acute right to carry outside the home. Uh, it's not, a, I mean, it's like, a, it's basically like the categorical ban that was struck in Heller, you know. If you, if you don't have an avenue, uh, and as Alan was talking about, you know, there's no application for a permit. You just, what, you simply write a letter. Where's your, where, where's your due process in that? Um, so if you don't have a, a, a right to exercise outside the home, then it, it, it violates the bare part of, of the Second Amendment. And unfortunately, you know, we do have Drake, which, which upheld New Jersey's justifiable need standard. Uh, but if you read judges, uh, Hardiman's dissent from the Third Circuit, he completely lays out how the right extends outside the home and how justifiable need, if the Supreme Court would take a case and finally put this issue to rest, would not withstand constitutional scrutiny under Heller and McDonald. Um, Alan, did you want to jump in on that point as well? Uh, a couple of things. I think that the language that 
Well, the argument that the uh, right is not a, as acute outside the home um, supports uh, the uh, rest of that portion of the Heller opinion that states that uh, there should be restrictions in quote-unquote sensitive places like courtrooms and uh, schools. I don't know if that supports simply banning, putting in place a good cause requirement that effectively bans the exercise that right anyway. Anyway, you know, I, I think the uh, better analysis is to say that uh, the right may be less acute outside the home. Thus, if uh, we show some sort of government interest in uh, regulating the right in particular areas that are um, maybe that where there's a higher government interest, like like a courtroom, from um, you know, then we can do so in a way that might be unconstitutional if this was a similar restriction inside the home. I, I don't know if that language necessarily supports uh, the uh, good cause requirements. However, the court didn't really need to get to uh, any sort of um, scrutiny analysis in here. It just simply found, it, it found that the uh, right has been just categorically um, restricted because as the record demonstrates, uh, the, uh, there is no mechanism for a private citizen to to get a permit. Um, so the levels of scrutiny that uh, normally are associated with, um, you know, a First Amendment law that had been, uh, you know, uh, borrowed for Second Amendment law just simply aren't applicable in a situation where we're dealing with a complete ban. And I think the opposing counsel, and, and I'm, Alan, correct me if I'm wrong, was uh, Judge Clifton asked uh, opposing counsel, you know, there's never been a permit issued, you know, talking about an exceptional cause requirement. And uh, opposing counsel said, well, there's an exceptional, co- exceptional cause requirement. We just haven't seen an exceptional case yet. I mean, that's, you know, if we go back to the the data that we have from, you know, 2000 to present, you know, that's 18 years of no permits issued. You can't tell me uh, in a state as big as Hawaii that not one person can meet an exceptional need requirement. It just, I mean, it, it defies logic. But that's their opinion, and that's why, that's why it's, you know, basically a categorical ban. At least New Jersey, and and I'm not a fan of the justifiable need requirement in New Jersey, and Alan and I have litigated a case up there as well. At least New Jersey issues about 690 permits a year. So we can't say that they categorically deny the permits. They're very, very almost impossible to get, but at least they issue almost 690 permits a year. It's interesting because then that sort of fact-specific element here that the the permits theoretically can be granted, but in reality had really never been. And Buddy's, the impact it seems of the the, the ruling a little bit because it, it's not clear, or maybe it is, but you can let me know, um, that the, the majority here is holding that these good cause justifications are themselves not okay, or if it's just that this one was kind of turned up to too you know, intense of a filter to keep folks from getting the permit. Is, it, is, is the opinion here making a clear statement as to whether this sort of ban generally, not this one specifically, uh, is, is problematic? I think, it's stro- I think it strongly supports that, but I'm always uh, hesitant to uh, read too much into opinion as to applying it to a fact that wasn't before the court. 
in saying that the court definitively ruled on that issue. I think that it, uh, there's a lot there that, that strongly supports the position that good cause requirements are unconstitutional. I just, I, I, it's maybe a step too far to say that it definitively ruled that uh, that is the case. We also had to be careful because, you know, we're still litigating this, right? So we don't want to, uh, you know, g- give a, give away the boat here and, um, uh, I guess, go go too far. So sure. that's a, another caution that we have. Yeah, that, that could be my last question. We could wrap up. I'm cognizant. I'm taking up a good bit of your gentleman's time. The, looking forward, in, in this case, obviously, I'm sure it has not eluded um, both of your notice that the Peruta decision also was a split panel decision authored by Judge O'Scanlan in the Ninth Circuit that was fairly quickly sent up to en banc review and then and then reversed. You, do you think that that is a likely path forward? And, and I guess more broadly, do you think that um, cases like this that have also been dealt with in other circuits will finally get uh, some attention from the Supreme Court in this specific question, the good cause kind of justification to get public carry permits uh, will be um, ruled on by the high court? Well, the uh, even before the Ninth Circuit's ruling in Young, there was a uh, open circuit split, and that split uh, that occurred with the uh, uh, D.C. Court of Appeals ruling in uh, Wren, and uh, another case was heard at the same time, Grace, and uh, those uh, litigated by uh, Alan Gura, who also litigated uh, Hillary McDonald. So after the District of Columbia declined to appeal its uh, case up to the Supreme Court. So the case died at the, uh, after the appeal was rendered. And uh, there, there was an um, open circuit split. So what has happened is several groups have uh, filed a um, subsequent cases in the Second Circuit, Third Circuit, and uh, Fourth Circuit. What in uh, it's, uh, New Jersey, Maryland and uh, New York, and there was already a case happening uh, out of Massachusetts. So what's uh, happened recently is those in the second, third, and fourth circuit, all those cases are bound by a uh, circuit court precedent. So th- they've been uh, quickly dismissed out. And the first circuit had arguments uh, yesterday in a case called uh, Gold v. Uh, O'Leary. So it's going to be a little bit uh, interesting to uh, see uh, which what happens in the uh, circuit courts uh, because the uh, First Circuit, I listened to oral arguments this morning, and uh, they tried to heavily distinguish uh, the Ninth Circuit case, Young, and uh, they tend to operate a lot quicker than the Ninth Circuit. So it's possible that that case will issue a ruling and maybe contemporaneously go to the Supreme Court with one of the other cases, or potentially my case. The uh, Third Circuit has also issued, has uh, agreed to issue a, a summary of affirmance in the New Jersey case that's come up. And now in both uh, the First Circuit, and we'll see what happens um, in, in terms of actual ruling in the First Circuit case, but the, both that and the Third Circuit uh, fairly soon will be uh, ripe for um, some sort of uh, search or in and because of the open circuit split, I think that whatever whatever case gets sent up next has an extremely strong likelihood of being granted. Now, in my case, and I believe 
in 14 days, the, uh, st- uh, the county defendants have to decide whether they want to file for an bond petition. I, um, I suspect they will, but I think right now they're still trying to figure out exactly what they want to do. And I think that, uh, you know, there's whether or not that gets granted is really dependent on, to a large degree, on whether the Supreme Court, if the Supreme Court is going to hear, say, a First Circuit or Third Circuit case, it might be the Ninth Circuit decides, you know, just to let all of it go up and be consolidated into one case, uh, much like the two uh, Seventh Circuit cases that was consolidated in uh, McDonald at the Supreme Court. The NRA had one, and uh, the Second Amendment Foundation had the case. Uh, and they got to consolidate together, but um, it's you know it's it's a strong possibility. I, I don't really want. I, I would prefer not to um, predict what the Embank Court does. You know, once that happens, but you know we're we're preparing to um, have to litigate this uh, in bonk. And, you know, I'll sort of leave it at that. Uh, Stephen, do you have any last thoughts on the path forward or for, the, for this issue? No, I actually, uh, I'm, I'm 100% on board with Mr. Beck. Great, then we can go ahead and wrap up. Appreciate both of your time. We have uh, Alan Beck from the office of Alan Beck in, in San Diego. Thanks for being on the podcast. Okay, thank you very much for your time, Brian. Sure, and Stephen Stambulia from the Stambulia Law Firm in Madison, Mississippi. Thanks very much for being on the show. I appreciate it. Thanks, sir. It was, it was a pleasure. As we've spoken about, the opinion rendered Tuesday was a split one, including a fairly vigorous dissent by Judge Clifton. Here now to unpack that dissent and place its arguments in the broader Second Amendment jurisprudential context is Hannah Shear, a staff attorney with the Giffords Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence in San Francisco. Hannah, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Great. So um, listeners have just heard from the co-counsel to the plaintiff in this appeal, going over some of the, the bases of the reasoning and, and the holding of the majority opinion in the case. I'd like to, to now maybe pull out some principal threads from Judge Clifton's dissent and get your sense of those arguments and their persuasiveness and kind of where they fit into the broader Second Amendment jurisprudence and, and doctrine as it stands. One point of departure between the majority and this, the dissent is, I guess, how relevant that recent 2016 case, Peruta versus San Diego, is on, on the case here. The majority and the dissent do agree that the Peruta case specifically only dealt with concealed public carry and not open carry, the question at issue here. But Judge Clifton in dissent does cite a good bit of dicta from the Peruta case he sees as, as relevant to to the current case and which supports a position that's contrary to the one the majority came down on. In, in your mind, how, how relevant is that Peruta en banc case here? The majority seems to pretty fully set it aside as the the dividing line between considering, you know, in a constitutional sense, the concealed and open carry of firearms is as clear as the majority describes it. It's true that the Peruta on Banc decision uh, focused on the narrow question of concealed carry, but one reason it's directly relevant to this case is because the opinion uh, addressed the history of public carry regulations quite exhaustively. And um, that history, um, you know, the historical laws regulating public carry didn't always draw a distinction between concealed and open carry. 
So I think that where the majority in Young went wrong is that it didn't um, follow the same approach to history that the Peruta on Banc decision did. It distinguished a lot of early English authorities, um, discounted the relevance of the the, um, early statute of Northampton that was really uh, influential to um, American colonial laws um, and later laws as well. So I think it is um, totally fair of Judge Clifton to point out that the young majority's treatment of history is at odds with how the Peruta on Banc decision treats it. Yeah, that's where I wanted to to go next to dig into the historical considerations made by the majority and then challenged by Judge Clifton in dissent. He, he calls them incomplete, the majority's treatment of the, the relevant history bearing on the question here. And I, I think Judge Clifton wants to dig into that history because he reaches the, the, the argument um, pulled then from the 2008 Heller case in which there's you know a rule stating that kind of long-standing prohibitions of, of certain types within the Second Amendment tend to be presumptively lawful. So I guess walk me through the history sort of as, as he sees it and, and how that plays into, I guess, his final conclusion that the type of regulation at issue here would be would be permissible. Well, Heller is a, a great starting point for that analysis because in addition to saying that certain types of gun regulations are presumptively lawful, the Heller majority opinion actually addressed prohibitions on carrying concealed weapons and noted, noted that um, the majority of 19th century courts to consider whether total prohibitions on carrying concealed weapons were lawful. And so, you know, that's a pretty significant um, difference between public carry and home possession. Um, The Heller majority is acknowledging that a regulation that actually completely prohibits one form of carrying firearms in public was historically considered to be lawful. And I think that the young majority's analysis is incomplete um, because it, it fails to engage with the idea that early courts were upholding total prohibitions. Of course, the the majority in Young seems to get around this by focusing on on open carry um, as opposed to concealed carry. But I think that Judge Clifton is right to say that they're sort of considering that question in a a vacuum. And the fact that uh, states could completely prohibit concealed carry um, certainly suggests that the right to public carry is subject to more meaningful restrictions than the right to home possession is. And another... um, interesting observation um, Judge Clifton makes is that the the majority opinion in Young cited laws and cases that are from the South before the Civil War. And so I think he's right to question those authorities a little more because they arose in a very specific regional context in American history and didn't necessarily reflect a broader consensus that that pretty strict regulations of public carry were permissible under the Second Amendment. So that that's related then, too, to a, another um, key difference between the majority and, and that it's dissents take here, and that's, I guess, what constitutes the core of the Second Amendment. So um, the majority writes pretty clearly that, it, in its view, the, the right to openly public carry a firearm is part of a, the core of the Second Amendment. Um, and, and Judge Clifton argues that it's it's not within the, the sort of the core second amendment right is the basis for that that latter holding uh, judge clifton's sort of rooted also in in his historical analysis and and precedent 
Yes, it is. And I, I think it's a striking contrast to the majority's determination because it's, the majority's determination really wasn't based on much. Um, they placed a lot of reliance on the, the text of the Second Amendment mm-hmm. and the discussion of keeping and bearing arms. But that doesn't necessarily mean that keeping arms for possession within the home is on par with carrying them publicly. Um, in the public arena, guns have always been regulated more strictly and states have recognized that public safety concerns are far more important um, in public when carrying a gun doesn't just affect the carrier, but also um, other people that that person encounters. So Judge Clifton recognized that uh, because throughout history it was quite common for governments to adopt strong regulations of um, the public carry of firearms and even prohibit certain forms of public carry altogether, that means that this isn't a core right. Um, just to you know, parse that a tiny bit further, that textual argument is does seem to be pretty central to the majority's ruling that uh, the Second Amendment entails both those verbs, to keep and to bear, and so Heller affirmed the, the right that you know, keeping within the home is, is protected, but that leaves um, some work to be done by that other verb, uh, bear, and uh, the majority seems to say it would be kind of illogical if that only meant to just kind of bear a weapon from um, maybe a point of purchase to the home or you know between places. But what what I guess is the the main response to just the the textual argument that the the word is in the amendment. It says that there's right to bear arms, and so that must mean that part of this core Second Amendment right as originally intended was that folks could carry weapons on them outside of the home? I think most most courts to look at that issue um, have assumed that the Second Amendment has some uh, application outside the home and that there, that there is a right to, to bear arms outside of the home, but that, that the text of the Second Amendment doesn't mean that those rights are equal. Um, especially when you're you're um, looking at the ho- historical context of um, gun regulations in America and seeing that that carrying arms in public was treated as a, a very serious um, potential danger to public safety and subject to lots of regulations. In terms of the textual argument itself, I don't. I also don't know that it's um, as strong as the majority suggests. Uh, there, you know, there's some suggestion even in uh, Heller, the Heller decision um, certainly talked about the need for self-defense as being um, most acute in the home and sort of set aside the question of, of self-defense rights outside the home. But um, the ultimate remedy that the Heller court ordered for the, the plaintiff in Heller was that he be issued a license so that he can keep and wear firearms in his home. So, um, act, so actually, um, you know, so, sometimes the word bear or wear has been interpreted to uh, apply in the home only. Okay, uh, maybe just to, to complete the, the constitutional arithmetic here. So I guess by dint of Judge Clifton finding this right to publicly openly carry, kind of existing outside of the core of the Second Amendment, he believes that the court could or should apply uh, not the highest level of scrutiny, instead intermediate scrutiny. Could you walk me just through then how that approach works to the law at issue here and why um, 134-9, the Hawaii law, would pass it? Judge Clifton um, followed a pretty robust body of precedence on intermediate scrutiny in the Ninth Circuit. It's the, the standard of review that courts 
apply most often in Second Amendment challenges when the law at issue doesn't affect um, the core right of of keeping a handgun in the home for self-defense. And it it really uh, makes sense because if you don't apply heightened constitutional scrutiny, either intermediate or or strict scrutiny, what happens is what uh, the majority in Young did. Uh, they struck down a public safety law without considering the public safety justifications for that law at all. So selecting intermediate scrutiny appropriately allows governments to, to regulate guns with public safety in mind, and um, those types of regulations are going to be upheld if they, they uh, satisfy the evidentiary showing that, that intermediate scrutiny um, requires. So I think um, that Judge Clifton was uh, correct to say that because open carry of firearms uh, in public isn't a core right, that it's then appropriate to turn to intermediate scrutiny and look at the state's justifications for the law. Now, let me just uh, try to, to broaden out a bit. The In terms of the, uh, the import of the ma- majority's holding here, I had one question related to, um, I guess, kind of what exactly the, 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 the central takeaway is here. The majority's ruling is fairly you know, legal. It's really law-bound. It it's centers around a, a question of law, whether open carry as a, as a core Second Amendment right. But there also seems to be a kind of a factual issue that uh, plays in here that's specific to the case, namely that the Hawaii regulation did seem to filter out, in, according to the record, just about everyone that did apply for uh, public carry permits. I believe I think uh, the majority mentioned it hadn't found an instance when uh, such an application had been approved. So it kind of brings up the question as to just what the majority is um, striking down. Is it just maybe this statute because it's too strict or is it, can it be read more broadly as saying that kind of good cause, special need requirements in general um, would not pass muster when applied to folks seeking public uh, open carry permits? What's your take on, on that question? I don't think this opinion has direct bearing on good cause laws for either concealed or open carry because the majority opinion um, makes very clear that um, it's interpreting Hawaii's law to be a complete ban on public carry, either either concealed or open. And that's because the state um, conceded that it hadn't issued um, many permits. The defendant, the county of Hawaii, conceded that it had never issued um a uh, concealed carry permit, and there was evidence on the record to show that other counties in Hawaii had issued something like under five uh, permits in several decades. So um, the majority intentionally sidesteps the question of would a good cause law satisfy their interpretation of the open carry right? Um, And that's a pretty critical limitation. Um, You know, this opinion otherwise, I think, would have could have had a lot of bearing on uh, constitutional challenges that are pending to California's good cause concealed carry law, but California is in a very different position because uh, tens of thousands, you know, almost 100,000 permits have been issued in California. So this isn't a situation where the other states have a um, have what could be characterized as a total ban on public carry. And I think that's uh, the young opinion. Um, is uh, intentionally limited to the the facts of Hawaii's law and how it's actually being applied. Yeah, maybe then just to wrap up that, it seems 
relevant, that sort of limiting aspect of the opinion to the the potential for this case to, I guess, be a, a vehicle for a question of good cause requirements in this context to kind of get to the Supreme Court. I know the good cause requirements have been challenged in circuits around the country, and I think there's a, a bit of a split. Uh, what is the sort of the state of the landscape at the moment with regard to the open carry or concealed carry, just public carry generally, and these sorts of laws like Hawaii's? There's a number of cases pending right now that that squarely present the question of the constitutionality of good cause laws. Um, I don't think Young is is one of them because um, because of the way the court interpreted Hawaii's law to be a total ban. So I think that if the Supreme Court is going to review the good cause issue, they're likely to take up a case that's pending in the First Circuit at the moment. Um, over it's a, a Second Amendment challenge to Massachusetts good cause type law for concealed carry permits. Um, and you know, they, they, it does seem likely that the court is going to take up that question because there, there's a circuit split right now. Um, most of the federal appellate courts to look at good cause laws have upheld them. But in 2017, the, the D.C. Circuit struck down the District of Columbia's good cause law, um, and the district didn't appeal that decision. So there's basically a, a live uh, split, and there have been a number of lawsuits uh, filed to try to um, present a vehicle for Supreme Court review on that issue. Okay, and we'll certainly stay tuned in to, to further developments here in this um, line of, of jurisprudence, but we'll leave it there for now. Uh, Hannah Shearer from the Giffords Law Center to prevent gun violence. Thanks very much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And that's our show for July 27th, 2018. I'd like to tender thanks one more time to all three of my guests, Alan Beck, the law offices of Alan Beck in San Diego, Stephen Stambolia, the Stambolia Law Firm in Madison, Wisconsin, also Hannah Shearer from the Giffords Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence in San Francisco. Thanks also go out to my production staff here, principally Nick Perez, and of course, thank you very much for tuning in. It's tremendously appreciated. Don't forget that our show can be found on iTunes and the podcast app by searching Weekly Appellate Report. Finding us there, clicking us, rating us, and reviewing us, and subscribing to us is all greatly appreciated. Also, don't forget that CLE credit can be had by listeners of the podcast by finding a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. I'm Brian Cardell. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week. <laughs>